See that flashing sign up there? Now that sign says applesauce. No, no, I, I'm kidding. It says applause. All right. Now, remember, we're on in 10 seconds, so get ready to have a good time. All right, here we go. Welcome to the Directors Club Podcast. I'm Patrick Rapolo. Over there is Jim Laskowski. How you doing, Jim? I'm very good, Patrick. Yeah? I'm not giggling as much as That's good during to hear. take one. Yeah, this is the second take. I wasn't expecting Larry Sanders episode, uh, Larry Sanders intro the first time, uh, but I like it. It works. Yeah, I thought so. Um, as you can tell by our music, uh, by the music that uh, came with it, uh, we're going to be covering Terry Gilliam today. That's a song, the title track from Brazil. The titular track. The titular track. One of my favorite titular tracks. Um, From a very good movie that we'll be discussing later. Yeah. Uh, uh, Mr. Terry Gilliam, formerly of Monty Python. mm -hmm. He was the animator for Monty Python, and then once uh, John Cleese left, he began to appear in more sketches, but he's not an actor. Right. True. uh, And then he he directed uh, the last two Monty Python movies and helped write you know, uh, he he wrote, wrote Holy Grail or helped write it, and then uh, he directed Life of Brian and um, Meaning of Life. I was um, going to launch right into some business up, yeah. up front. As yeah, I'm we'll cover Terry Gilliam do. later. Yeah, we'll, we'll 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 launch deep into Terry in a in a little while. Yeah, deep into him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um. So um, I forgot to mention. By the way, I just wanted to bring up: there's going to be a contest. Uh, just I want everyone listening to count the prison rape references we make, and uh, the listener with the correct number of prison rape references gets a no prize. So uh, you know, keep keep an ear out for more prison rape references. If you've been listening closely, there's been one so far. All right, go ahead, Jim. <laughs> oh boy. Mm-hmm. Just take a drink every time you hear the word rape yeah. during this episode. Uh-huh. Um, Good thing we're not covering Gasper No. Mm, yeah. We should. Sometime. So, yeah. Um, last week on the show, I did mention that we do have a website, but I forgot to mention our email account. That's right. You should totally hit us up there and uh, you know send some questions, feedback, concerns, mm-hmm. uh, recipes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I could go for... Uh, nudes. Yeah, if you're into that. Send nudes. Okay. I'm going to I'm gonna go ahead and make a demand right now. We're giving so much to you, our listening audience, for free. All I ask in return is pictures of your naked bodies. Mm. We'll, uh, we'll cover that in the next episode and play, yeah. play the song Pictures of You by The Cure. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and Girls on Film. We'll do a video podcast of some kind and show us uh, show the world our stuff as well. Yeah, our stuff as in our DVD collections and our book collections and our tiny shriveled penises. Um. So, we did get an email um, at Directors Club Podcast at Gmail dot com. Directors Club Podcast at Gmail dot com. Is there an echo in here? No, you gotta. You know. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. They could have said Sunday once, but you're never going to know when the Monster Truck Rally is unless you say it three times. All you really have to do is go to directorsclubpodcast.com. That's why they say Candyman three times, because they can't remember <laughs> his name otherwise. It's five times. Is it? Yeah. Five times in that yeah. movie? Mm-hmm. 
Ah, that's another director I'd like to tackle. Yeah, but, well, because uh, I I liked uh, Candyman quite a Wait, bit. Wait, did Clive Barker direct that? No, Clive Barker actually didn't. I think a guy named Bernard, not Herman, because he's a composer. Right. Bernard Rose, I want to say, did Candyman and uh, a couple other movies. Immortal Beloved with Gary Oldman as Beef Oven. Mm, never uh, saw that one. Yeah, it's, it's pretty good. Not spectacular, but um, so yeah, we're digressing a little bit here, but that's kind of what we're known for. Um, <laughs> that and our tiny shriveled penises. Sorry, someone got a text <laughs> message. Uh, Jim, why don't you read what the uh, email said? Um, I will. This email comes from Anne, and she says, I'm really enjoying the podcast. I found it on iTunes, checked out the website. You guys are a riot. Oh, I do have a suggestion for you to consider. Um, I'm not sure how many episodes you plan on doing, but for directors who have a large filmography, you could do a sequel episode to a director you're really interested in covering. For someone like Steven Soderbergh, you could easily do one episode covering two from his indie work, then a second episode covering two from his studio work. I like that idea. No, it's a good idea. Yeah. Uh, she says, hope you guys keep it up. Uh, a lot of podcasts come and go, but I'm glad to found this one at the beginning. Thanks for the train ride entertainment and a film student. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you very much, Anne. That's really and, cool. Um, that really made uh, my day. I'm, we're, I'm glad that we can uh, you know, entertain you during your train ride and... Maybe it'll take your mind off that one guy in the corner who keeps staring at you. No, I know him. I know the one. You don't have to. Yeah. The old guy that's masturbating. He, it, he could be masturbating. He could just be shaky. You, it's hard to tell under the overcoat. It really is. Hmm. I know the guy. Um, yeah, I've, that's a good suggestion. It's something I was definitely, uh, I think we definitely were considering beforehand. Um, uh, we do want to try to get a wide variety of directors, Um but depending on how long it goes, we're definitely not going to be averse to tackling uh, a director twice. You know, we'll just have to title the episode uh, Rob Zombie 2. Um, no, we don't. Because <laughs> that would be great, wouldn't it? You want to cover yeah. Halloween and, and Halloween 2? We no, could cover The Haunted World of El Super Bisto. That'd probably be better because it's animated, right? Yeah. So it doesn't... Okay. <laughs> well, when his new movie comes out, if we're actually going to be... <laughs> I'm sure we'll be doing this by that time. Hmm. I don't know when it's coming out, but I'm I don't even know if he's filming it yet, but yeah. I'm I like I said in the last show, I'll I'll happily go see a new Rob Zombie movie and then we could cuz you won't oh, happily. We, we didn't, we You'll didn't, do it, but we, it won't be happy. We we mentioned this um we haven't mentioned this on the air. I think we just mentioned this as after the show after mm-hmm. we recorded, but when movies come out in theaters, like we mentioned Kevin Smith's Red State should be coming out later this year. It's a first Sundance screening. It's going to be coming out uh, probably today if, if this comes out Sunday. But oh, it, cool. It's, it's going to be this Sunday. So, And uh, I was thinking David Gordon Green. I really want to do an episode on him because he's one of my new favorite directors. Mm-hmm. And uh, He's great. Undertow. He's got two movies coming out this year what, alone. I know, uh, he, Your Highness? And what's the other one? The, another one starring Jonah Hill. I forgot what it's called. Oh, really? I think it's called The Sitter. Is it a comedy? Yeah. Is he just is he doing comedies now or I don't I I hope not long term or indefinitely or whatever you want to call it from yeah. now on or I hope he does something Oh, he's likes, good at it. Yeah. No. Pineapple I, Express I, is one of my favorites. Right. And that's what I'm saying. It's like, you know, we can definitely go to the theater, mm-hmm. you know, to see a movie and definitely. then and then review it on the show, you know, before, you know, the weekend's over and Will then we'll be check doing it out. A, a Kenneth Branagh episode about Thor. Uh, May, no, what? no, we won't. Kenneth Branagh did Thor. Yeah, he's directing Thor. Oh, that looks like horrible. That it looks does horrible. Look, yeah, but doesn't it look silly? Like yeah. kind of. Sh- yeah. Huh. It's Kenneth. It's Kenneth uh, Branagh. Um, wow. I actually like. 
a couple of Kenneth Branagh movies. No, he's yeah. good. Much Ado About Nothing, I enjoy. Henry V. Henry V. I think he did Dead Again, which I really liked, which is... Uh, I don't know that one. Yeah. It's like a film noir reincarnation kind of a movie. With, oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. It's really cool. It's I, I really... I mean, it's kind of manipulative, but I still like it. Did he do Dead Heat with uh, Joe Piscopo as the zombie cop? No. I don't know if I like Kenneth Branagh I as much anymore. I didn't know about that. You don't know about that movie? No. Uh, it's uh, uh, it's uh, Joe Piscopo, and uh, it's the guy from... It's not Tom Berenger. It's someone else. Um, but uh, I think it's called Dead Heat, hmm. and uh, it's kind of an 80s cult classic. Um, we got another email uh, from a listener. Uh, we did? Yeah. Uh, an actual... He sent in a song. Oh. Yeah. Uh, from F. Schneider... Uh, hold on, I have it right here. Uh, he says, I'm enjoying the podcast a lot, and I use this song uh, for you guys to introduce one of your segments. I hope you like it. Um, you guys should do a Todd Haynes episode. So that was nice. Uh, so F. Schneider, I guess F stands for Frank, um, he sent in this song. So uh, let's listen to it and introduce the next segment. For movies and we watch this week. Watch this week. We'll watch this week. For movies and we watch this week. The jukebox money. Jukebox money. The jukebox money. Wow. I enjoyed that. Yeah, that was great. F. God, that voice sounds familiar. W- was he the guy who starred as the bellboy in Home Alone 2? If Frank Schneider? Yeah. I don't know. The um, bellboy? Yeah, wasn't he? I th- I thought that was, he was Rob. The... That was Rob Schneider. Oh, I, yeah. got, I was like, I was really confused there. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking maybe it was Fred Schneider of the mm-hmm. B-52s. He also, no, he, it wasn't Fred Schneider of the B-52s. Hmm. Why would he listen to our podcast? It probably wasn't Zack Snyder either who uh, wow. d- directed 300. I always thought Rob Schneider was in the B-52s. I was really confused there for a yeah. second. Deuce Bigelow, European gigolo. Uh-huh. I like Fred Schneider. Uh, but that was Frank Frank Schneider. Okay, um, maybe it's his but brother. anyway, maybe that was his brother. Jim, what movies did you watch this week? Hmm, you asked me that last week. Yeah, I was going to ask you first this week, just I to see. change things up. Because you're a gentleman. Yeah, I'm a gentleman. Why but don't you, you know ask what? me what I saw this week? All right, we'll do it that way. So, Patrick Rapole, what movies did you watch this week? Oh, now I feel like I'm on a game show. Oh, boy. Pressure's on. Yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, let's see. Uh, no, okay. Um, other than a lot of – I watched a lot of Terry Gilliam other than the two movies we're going to cover because I wanted to um, sort of get reacquainted. But other than that, I watched um, the movie Valley of the Dolls, which is uh, 60s – I think it's 67. Um, it's sort of like a Hollywood attempt at an exploitation movie where it's every – like. Uh, show business rise and fall movie cliche um every like lurid t- subject matter sort of shoved into one movie <clears throat> excuse me there's uh there's abortion there's pill addiction there's suicide is there rape there's rape um there's uh there's um you know unwanted pregnancy i think at one point there's an alien abduction uh, it sort of throws everything in there, but it's, it's very much a Hollywood sort of approach to an exploitation movie where um, it sort of tries to, you know, it it, it doesn't fully commit. And uh, it was sort of remade by um, Russ Meyer and Roger Ebert, actually, as Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, which I f- 
found like ten times better because it really yes. did commit to um, being, you know, really exploitative and lurid and crazy and campy and uh, have a lot of nudity. But there are a lot of pretty girls and beyond uh, in v- the Valley of the Dolls, including Patty Duke. Yeah, Patty Duke and uh, Sharon Tate. Though oh, I I do say yeah. if you're going to be googling like Sharon Tate photos, just beware. Most of them have Helter Skelter written on the wall. Ouch. Yeah. So, and then that would lead us to Roman Polanski, and mm-hmm. he did an act. He did an act of uh, rape. <laughs> as a matter <laughs> of fact. Um. So yeah, I watched that, and then I watched the uh, Tony Scott remake of Taking of the Pelham One Two Three. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's the most. Uh, I've I was told that it was okay, and it isn't. It's really it's the worst Tony Scott movie I think I've ever seen, and one of John Travolta's worst performances. Yeah, he's he is, really he bad. He does not do villain at all no. very well. You know what I noticed? Except in Pulp Fiction, but you know what he he's can't. Not really a villain. You know what he can't do? Hmm. He can't say motherfucker. Um, I find a lot of white people have this problem, but it's – I think motherfucker, it's like a broadsword. It's like mm-hmm. you wield it and it's big and it's sort of impressive. But if you're too weak to really like hold it and own it, then it makes you look you know, kind of weak because your knees are shaking and your, you know, your hands are trembling. I and just remember him from Broken Arrow. Does like, he say motherfucker in that a lot? I think he did. Mm, he at least said, stop shooting at the thermonuclear <laughs> weapon. <laughs> It, no, he's no, he's really bad in this. He and everything about the movie is bad. Denzel Washington's asleep during it. The only the only character I really liked was James Gandolfini's mayor, who uh, surprisingly he's the most like sympathetic character. Yeah, and and uh, last year I saw Tony Scott's follow up Unbreakable, which is so much better. Is it? It shocked the hell out of me because mm-hmm. I haven't liked a Tony Scott film in I don't know how long, maybe since Crimson Tide. Is his next movie going to be a remake of Strangers on a Train? <laughs> no. Or Under Siege 2, which also takes place on a train? I actually like Under Siege 2. Yeah? You know who played the bad guy in Under Siege 2? Uh, Eric Bogosian, star of talk radio. That's right. That's yeah. right. Eric Bogosian was the bad guy? Yeah. Really? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's weird to think about. I know. Um, yeah, so Taking the Pelham was horrible. Uh, Valley of Dolls is all right. And I've been watching a lot of Breaking Bad. AMC has been replaying the entire uh, three seasons of Breaking Bad leading up to the season four premiere. And that show's amazing. Have you gotten to season three? No, not yet. Um, midway in season two. We just The last episode I saw was the one that begins with the mariachi band music video. That, like, oh, yeah. <laughs> that just <laughs> not, unexplained... The episode starts with a mariachi band singing about the plot, what has happened so far, and what's happening elsewhere. And, like, it's the silliest, weirdest thing, and it and it works, and it's kind of amazing. But what I really find impressed about Breaking Bad is how the scope is really limited. The A lot of TV shows these days, they have to sort of have a ton of characters and a ton of different storylines – there really aren't – there's only like you know six, seven main characters at uh, – I think it might only be six main characters in this show. There's really only one storyline. Um, every episode immediately begins after the other. And it's extremely tense and I really like that sort of laser-sharp focus, which is kind of unique for TV. Yeah, it's definitely my favorite show on TV right now besides like Community. Um, I, mean, I don't watch a lot of new TV but no. I 
I'm like addicted to that show. I can't. I, I have a problem committing to a, every week being there to watch it. Right. I normally catch up on DVD or, um, you know, a lot of the times if it's on demand, I'll watch it that way. But I got to I've just we've just been DVRing, DVRing Breaking Bad because it seems like a better alternative to like having to buy all the DVDs. True. And Although I own all the DVDs. Oh, I could have borrowed them for you. Yeah. I told uh, you that a while ago, but you're like, no, I'm going to wait. I was like, well, okay. Oh, that's right. Yeah. I don't know why I said that. I'm dumb. Hey, Jim, what did you watch this week? <laughs> that was it for you then? Okay. Yeah. You know, a bunch of Terry Gilliam movies. This is a, a one, like, t- I saw two movies this week, and one will be kind of surprising maybe to you, because I will be sort of coming out of the closet, so to speak, in terms okay. of- Okay. Uh, so you saw two gay pornos back to back. No, 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 I actually saw Conviction, and the reason why, I, because I feel the Jake little, Gyllenhaal. I, uh, what? No. What's it? No, no, not Jake Gyllenhaal. I'm sorry. Okay. Um, Sam Rockwell and Hillary Swank. Hillary Swank. Yeah, um, and the Where Hillary why, Swank becomes <laughs> a lawyer to save Sam Rockwell. And, and, who's and you in said prison. the key word there because it's not something. You said the word lawyer. Yeah. And I don't know what it is because I feel embarrassed. By saying this, but I love John Grisham movies. Uh-huh. I love movies about lawyers. Mm-hmm. I really don't know why, because most of them are extremely manipulative, and you know where they're going to go. Um, like a lot of the archetypes you expect, like you know somebody's trying to fuck things up on the inside. And but then again, know. sometimes they have Mickey Rourke as a shark-like lawyer who has a tank full of sharks <laughs> in the Rainmaker, which <laughs> oh is God, which I, I love. <laughs> he's feeding his fucking sharks, that. and he's a shark lawyer. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah, I don't know. Ever I, I feel like ever since I saw The Client, which is not a great movie, for some reason, I, I don't know, as a kid I was like into watching movies where, yeah, the lawyer's going to save the day because he's smart, and he's got all these stacks of papers. And I really, really respond to movies about selflessness and like, I'm going to fucking work overtime to help this cat, you right. know, that kind of shit. And I just really liked... Um, a lot of John Grisham movies in the past. So how was uh, Conviction? Not too good. No? Um <laughs> I mean, the weird thing about it is, is because I go in, you know, and po- probably because of the marketing campaign, you're like, oh, Oscar caliber. Look at these amazing performances. Oh, they, you know, they age over time. And, you know, Sam Rockwell is supposed to play a badass and everything. I thought Sam Rockwell and Hilly Swank were bad. I thought they were genuinely bad performances, like really, really over the top. Um, no subtlety at all. Um, the, the, the score rises exactly when you expect it to. It was just uh, cliche after cliche with this movie. Uh, the guy who directed it is named Tony Goldwyn, and he's actually, he's an actor that people would know as the bad guy from Ghost. Oh, uh, hey, Tony you know. Goldwyn. Yeah, that guy. Yeah. I think he's directed a couple other movies in the past, and I wasn't too crazy about him either. Um, the only thing that saved this movie, and I am shocked to say this because I don't know if I've ever liked a performance by this actress... Juliette Lewis really has like two scenes in this movie and fucking steals it from people like Melissa Leo and you're, uh, you're Peter Gallagher. Me. She Juliette is fucking Lewis? great in just like two scenes in this movie. Oh man! And it's not really necessarily hammy, but you just buy into her emotional state even more so than like Hillary Swank, who's like determined to get her brother out of jail, and that's why she becomes a lawyer and sacrifices her family. Blah blah blah. You know where it's gonna go. You know how it's gonna end. Happy ending. The end. Not a great movie. No. Overall. But I still, I don't know why. I feel like embarrassed to admit that I like movies about lawyers. Well, I mean, 
people have to, I'm I'm really into police procedurals. Yeah. The more mundane details about police work that's in a movie or a TV show, the more I like it. And I even like A Few Good Men. And it's like, I know these movies are pretty cliche and manipulative, and they have these big grandiose scenes that take place in the courtroom. And I don't know, maybe, I, I like, probably one of my favorite movies is 12 Angry Men, but that doesn't really take place at all in, right. in the courtroom. Right. That's not, that's not the same thing. Right. I, I, I felt, I feel this way about the uh, legal drama Bananas. Do you remember the uh, <laughs> the big co- dramatic courtroom scene in Bananas, which was a uh, docudrama <laughs> about the legal system? Um, um, so what what was the other movie you saw? Um, something that genuinely surprised me because I was hearing good things about it, much like last year, everybody, um, like my film critic friends were telling me all about going the distance and how much I'd like it. I got like five texts after a screening this past Wednesday of the movie, no strings attached. And they all said, Jim, you've got to see it. And really? I went, fuck you. I just, I texted them back, literally, no, fuck you, I'm not seeing that. Right. I have no interest. It looks horrible. It was amazing. What are you talking about? <laughs> I was shocked. No strings how attached, you like? Yep. And now, keep in mind, this is where Patrick and I differ. I also really love romantic comedies. I love like romantic comedies. My favorite well, movie of all time is a romantic comedy. I know, but... I, so it's it's more along the lines of a love actually, mm-hmm. you know, which I hate, where, which is definitely which isn't a romantic comedy because there's very little that's funny about it. I I thought it was funny, but the thing about this movie is as much like going the distance. It incorporates a lot of pop culture references without being obvious, like something like High Fidelity. Um, mm-hmm. You got Greta Gerwig in it. You got you got an amazing supporting cast. Uh, the 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 Indian girl from The Office. Yeah, forgot her name. Yeah, so did I. That's fine. just okay, but she's in it. Um, Mindy Kaling, that's her name. Yeah. Kevin Klein is in this movie, and he's hilarious, and he hasn't been funny in a long time. I love Kevin Klein. Yeah. Hey, Um, Jim, can I do a quick sidebar? That's okay. I've come up with a Sophie's Choice, and I need you to choose. Mm -hmm. All right? Two amazing character actors who just regularly steal movies they're in. All right, you ready? Um, Kevin Klein. No, I'm going to give you two options, and you have to tell me which one you like better: Kevin Klein or Stanley Tucci. Well, I feel like Kevin Klein's always been more of a, a leading man in most of the movies he's been in. Fish Called Wanda. I almost feel he's like he's not the lead in that. I feel like he is. No, he's a supporting character. He got nominated. I think he won supporting best supporting actor. Okay. No, you're probably right. I'm just thinking of him in like. In I'm a, thinking of him in, in like out. Prairie Home lead. Companion. He comes in and steals the movie. I love you to death. He's the lead in that. He's uh he's in the Ice Storm. Well, well Stanley Tucci's been the lead. He's the lead in Big Night. He's in yeah. the Imposters. You know, if you're asking me to choose between those two, that's tough for me because I yeah. think I feel more of a personal attachment to Kevin Klein. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I like Stanley Tucci more as an actor. Oh, really? Yeah, because. Other than like a fish called Wanda, or you know, because I I hate the Big Chill. Uh-huh. I just I don't like that movie. Um, I mean, he's been good in other things like Dave, and he's really good in the Ice Storm. Mm-hmm. But um, I think I've just generally enjoyed Stanley Tucci more. Stanley Tucci's one of my favorites. Yeah, and I, I was devastated when I found out he was straight. Mm. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Not only. So- yeah, the, well, the thing about No Strings Attached is I feel like yeah, Ivan Re- <laughs> director Ivan Reitman took notes from his son mm-hmm. because there's a lot of 
up in the air in Juno in this movie. In fact, Juno's best friend, Olivia Thurlby or something, uh, she's in this too uh-huh. as a, as the sister. But Natalie Portman's great. Ashton Kutcher and Natalie Portman actually are believable in this movie. They have chemistry together. That's interesting because um, I've heard the exact opposite. Every no, Everything I've read. Oh. No. No, I'm 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 genuinely surprised by how much I enjoyed it. It's you definitely know where it's going, but at the same time, I liked, I especially liked the scene. Um, well, I won't give anything away, but it involves a mixed CD. So I don't know. <laughs> a woman wrote the script. I know, and um, you know, you know, the title says it all. They just they're just two people who just want to have casual sex and not commit. And then guess what? Oh. They wind up falling for each other. You right, know where right, it goes. Right. But it's really That's, great. You don't watch romantic comedies to be surprised. No, but I was surprised by this one. Genuinely surprised. Well, I mean, I, what if I it, meant is what I meant is, it's not a point against it if you know what the plot is. I'm not saying yeah. you have to rush out and see it. It's a $5 matinee or a rental, uh-huh. but it's a solid $5 matinee. It's probably going to be on, like, Stars or Encore. I'll yeah. watch it. I mean, I've heard good things about, about the dilemma. Months. Did you hear good things about the dilemma? I've heard good things no, about that, too. I have heard terrible things about the dilemma. Okay. We're that's, talking to completely different really, people. Apparently, that's really interesting. No, I, yeah, but other than that, the only but other I hate, thing I I don't think I could ever like the dilemma. I hate Vince Vaughn. Yeah, I can understand. He's that. well, I hate I hate Ashton Kutcher. Mm-hmm. He's not bad. He's not great, but he's not bad. I think it's mostly my Natalie Portman fixation that also helped with this movie. Oh, I think I she's see. great. I think listeners, she, you have to no, understand, I, no, Jim. Not, no, 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 no. It's not oh. just. It's not just because she's cute. I, know. I think she's a good actress, and she's good in this. How many of um, Amber Tamblyn's movies have you seen, Oh, Jim? shut your mouth. No, I think this is interesting. Why? He'll be interested to hear. How many of them? Probably all of them. All right, cool. But if... Is you been watching anything else recently? I watched The Larry Sanders Show. I'm through season one. I feel really proud that my winter break has been spent with community Arrested Development, and now Larry Sanders. Yeah. I've been laughing That's an amazing trifecta. Stop. Those are all top top shows of all time. Absolutely, for me, yeah. And I really got to give a shout-out to Jeffrey Tambor, because as much as I love Rip Torn, he has the more showier role in this, Jeffrey Tambor really genuinely creates one of those multidimensional characters where he's like an asshole, but you still sympathize with him. Oh, totally. You know? And he's, like, the last episode of season one was just... What what encapsulates how, you know, to me, how, what makes the show so great? Because it's like, as much, as hard as you're laughing, you really feel for Hank. And like, even in the stupider moments, you, you, you get the sense that he doesn't mean to fuck up, you know? Like, but he just, that's just who, that's just who he is and he can't help himself. But he genuinely wants to be appreciated. He wants to be well-liked. And the, the, this pretty much, the whole episode is pretty much about whether him and Larry are going to continue to get along and the way it ends is just beautiful. I I mean, it's, it's a really amazing show. It really paved the way for things like Arrested Development and, you know, the office, curb your enthusiasm. It has that awkward sense of humor. And I, 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 Gary Shandling is great, even though he's pretty much always playing Gary Shandling. He's just great at playing Gary Shandling. Right. I found uh, Jeffrey Tambor is just ineffable. Like it's not even that Hank and, uh, um, George Bluth are like similar characters, but he's just perfect in yeah. both those TV shows. Um, even um, that, even in the Tales from the Crypt episode he's in with Demi Moore, <laughs> he's really amazing. 
Uh, yeah, Jeffrey Tambor is incredible. Right. I love Larry Sanders' show. Yeah. Um, remind me to give you the uh, first disc of season one so you can just – well, actually, I, I got all of season one for mm-hmm. you if you want to have time to watch it. I don't know. I got a whole big backlog. I got my uh, Ala, Alejandro – I know I'm pronouncing this wrong – Jordowski box set in. I'm really excited to see. Um, the big Jordowski. The big Jordowski. <laughs> Sorry. That's that's pretty bad. Um, but he did but he did make cult cult movies like the Big Lebowski. Mm. Yeah. I got Ben Hur I still need to watch. I got fucking Ben Him. I got the four disc special edition of Ben Hur. I don't mm. even like epics. I just feel like that if I have to watch it because I have to, you know, get in the mood. I really want to watch Lawrence of Arabia someday. Yeah. I own it, but I don't I wanna wait till it gets on the big screen before I see Lawrence it for the first time. Arabia, British Beatles mania. Yeah. Something, 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 something. Leonard Bernstein. That's, no, the, no, that's, that's basically that's, the same that's, song. That's Billy Joel. I'm yeah. I know, but the REM song is basically the same thing. You're right. Wow, I never put those two songs together. Yeah, huh. you should. we should put those two Mash songs together like, as a mashup. Yeah, that'd be a good idea. Mm-hmm. Get on that shit. You're good at that. You know what? Hmm. We got a, we got, we've had, we got like maybe 50 listeners per episode. Mm. We should put this out to the listeners. Uh, They're sure not to disappoint us. <laughs> Surely one of you is a French DJ named Trixie who will love to do this. And hopefully one of you is named Shirley. Yeah. That would help. That would help. If we had a listener named Shirley. Because then we could just My make My mom's name jokes. is named Shirley, so I can just force her to listen to this. That way we can make that true. You shouldn't do that to her. No, I wouldn't. But other than that, haven't watched much else, but you know what's going on this weekend in Chicagoland? What? No, I don't know. So you better... I mean, dead air is not... The Chicago Bears... Are playing mm-hmm. the Green Day Packers. Yeah, it's and supposed to be amazing. Really, it's to be an amazing game, a life-affirming game. Is that true? I can't. Well, I, maybe this is where you and I. Wait, wait, too, wait, wait, wait. But wait, I listen wait. to a lot of AM radio, and uh-huh. I cannot escape the fact that this game is being played tomorrow at two p.m. Hey, Jim, and I have I, one question for you to see maybe if I'd be into it. Oh yeah. Are is the game they're playing football? Yes. All right, fuck it. I'm kind of with you there. I'll probably be watching more of the Larry Sanders show. Yeah. But, you know, that's just me. Yeah. But, you know, it's exciting, I guess. It's one of those things where it's like, well, people I I love and care for, they're into it. So I should probably know what's going on because the next day at work, that's all people are going to want to talk about. So maybe I should try watching it. I don't know. That's why you don't talk to people at work. That's my that's my uh, method. I don't talk. I look down. I'm yeah. like, you know, you ever seen like, you know, the X-Files episodes that always start with the quiet guy at work and then like he bumps into someone and they're like, Harry. And then <laughs> and then the, she turns to her like coworker and like, that guy's so weird. And then it turns out like he sees snake people in the walls. Speaking of snake people in the walls. Let me finish this so no one, <laughs> so people don't think I'm just rambling like a madman. Really that is, that's segue. me. That's me. I'm very quiet and, and weird and I look at the floor and I don't talk to anybody because of the snake people in the walls. But then we get you in front of a microphone. You can't shut the fuck up for yeah. five seconds. I know. Uh, what about snake people in the walls, Jim? <laughs> um, Freddy's dead. The new nightmare. <laughs> um, I remember uh, some snakes coming out of the wall in that movie. I can't believe that shit. In 3D. Okay. You want to hear a good Freddy's dead story? <laughs> Why not? All I right. mean, unless... I, it's got to involve Curtis Mayfield. 
Oh so. God. Okay, this is on the uh, this was on the Chud podcast, but one of the pe- friends of the Chud podcast, Will Mason, he borrowed the uh, Nightmare on Elm Street box set, and it comes with the little paper 3D glasses. <laughs> So he's sitting in his living room watching Freddy's Dead, the 3D version with the 3D glasses on. Mm-hmm. Doesn't make anything 3D. Um, the movie ends. He takes them off. He can't see. <laughs> what? His vision is gone. And he's like, holy shit, I just went blind watching <laughs> Freddy's Dead in my oh, no. living room. It, re- it returned 10 seconds later, but he said it was the most terrifying like 10 seconds of his life. We should try that out. See if that actually. Do you no. have the 3D glasses? Oh yeah. No, it's, uh. I still got that. That's one of my. Fa- that's my favorite horror movie series. Okay. Mm-hmm. Good. Well, speaking of horror movies series, the uh, letter S is in Sanchez, which is. I can't make that segue work. Speaking of a country. Speaking of segues. That's in South America. Sorry. Hey, Jim. Hmm. Let's talk about Terry Gilliam. The director made some movies. Oh, oh, we're going to talk about them now. I don't care if we agree or disagree. I don't care about that. The first movie we're going to talk about from Terry Gilliam is Brazil. The rules of the game are laid down. We all have to play by them. Look at you, Sam. Whatever happened to you? An empty desk is an efficient desk. Let a friend tell you your life is going wrong. Now shape up! Do cooperate. Think of your mother. Has anybody seen Sam Lowry? Sam, it's time for you to grow up and accept responsibility. You'll never get anywhere in a suit like that. Yes, yes, yes. Sam, what are we going to do with you? You must have hopes, wishes, dreams. No, nothing. Not even dreams. Oh, I don't know. I don't know what I want. You won't believe this. Um, I know it's going to sound incredible, but um, but I've been dreaming about you. I mean, I love you. In, In my, my dreams, dreams, I love you. All right. Well, Terry Gilliam directed an amazing movie called Brazil uh, from 1985, I believe. Yes. Mm-hmm. Ma, 1985. Hell of a year for movies. It was 1985. Yeah, it was a hell of a year. That's the year I fell in love with movies. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, I didn't see Brazil way back when I was seven. And that was two years before I was even born. Um, let's not discuss that at this juncture. We're discussing uh, a madman of sorts. Uh, uh, a rather he's he's a renegade this this Terry Gilliam he, he's he, part he, anarchist <laughs> I, I would I would agree with that yeah I would totally agree with that because he's like uh, his movies really celebrate filmmaking and imagination and in in such a way that's kind of like not I can't really figure out how to accurately describe it because he. He is anti-studio, anti-system. His movies almost reflect that. Absolutely. And he wants to make them his own way. He doesn't want anybody to tell him how his dreams, his imagination should be portrayed. And that's that's actually why um, <clears throat> Brazil is one of my favorite um, dystopian uh, future movies ever. Um, 
uh, because a lot of dystopian future movies, um, they take place in a world where everything is rigidly efficient and every – and you know they hear your every word and every thought that you have that is against the state will come back on you because they are all powerful and all controlling. And while that's certainly scary – um, and you know that can be intimidating. It all it ultimately doesn't ring true, especially you know dealing you know with the kind of government we've had in recent years. Mm-hmm. It's just all everything I've uh, his his government is. I mean his uh, uh, dystopian future is all about just the horrors of bureaucracy and how everything is broken. Right. There's no big brother figure like in no. v for Vendetta or something. You know? And that's this is actually one of the like best movies I've ever seen about like sort of the banality of evil in which it isn't there's no some cackling dictator at the top of it all I don't know if there's anybody at the top of it all I think it's such a I think like the government I in fact I'm not even sure if it's ever a go, if it's explained if it's a government or a corporation right and that's what I like about it um it could be either but I don't think I think it's such a complicated and rigid system of checks and balances that it's based on is it, it, the, his idea is that nothing can ever get done, mm-hmm. um, and that's his ultimate horror: is having to sign everything in triplicate, um, and having to get this stamped and take it over to this department. And and honestly, that's you know that's that really it really speaks to me in that way. Yeah, or or even getting like maintenance repair guys to come over and having to deal with that. <laughs> and, and and the thing about the most. The one thing I could say about Terry Gilliam that I like the most is that he does have a very bleak worldview in general, and he's not afraid to shy away from a you know in a sort of a depressing ending. But it's not necessarily depressing either because he's also you know he keeps his humor in check, but he's really dead set on having hope at the end of it all. I think what it is is he finds the world bleak. But he finds that inside of the people in it, there's hope. Yes. He what he when he looks around him, he doesn't like what he sees. But the power of the imagination um, and the individual and stuff is what he really celebrates. And in all of his movies, is all about the sort of the celebration of the individual over the uh, system. Right. And you know he satirizes bureaucracy in this movie so well. And in a way, I I can't help but think of well, this is Gilliam's. A vision of how he views the studio system too, and just how dysfunctional it's become. Absolutely, and you know how many times has he had to go through, you know, studio heads who don't agree with his vision, or who want changes and compromises. But this film doesn't want to do that. Yeah, this film in particular has a really fascinating um, background uh, uh, history of. The studio's taking it away from him and wanting to edit it down. They said it was too long. They said it was too depressing. And uh, I got the uh, Criterion uh, three three disc collection from the library, which actually includes the uh, final Love, cut. Love conquers all version. Um, yeah, it includes the final cut. It includes a doc uh, documentary about the making of Brazil and the fight they had. Um, it had the making of Brazil went pretty well. It was the post production process where just everything went to hell. Um, yeah. And <clears throat> they have – they actually include the version that the studios wanted. So it includes every cut the studios wanted to make. Um, it It's nearly 45 minutes shorter. It has a completely different ending. It's actually incoherent in some places. 
um, just because of how much is excised from the movie. And it's a real testament just to the power of editing how completely different the movie is. Um, it's not, It resembles nothing of like, the final cut um, at all. And what I what I really like about this movie is, you know, it it is long, and it's not it's not necessarily it. I think all of Gilliam's movies are long, and he's not really interested in giving you a tight, contained, compact story. No, he likes to he likes to go on uh, divergences. He likes to explore different characters and ideas and stuff, and he doesn't care, you know, if that stops the plot for a little bit. He goes on a lot of tangents. Yeah, but they all work them. and. If, if there's one thing you can say about all of Gilliam's work is it's visually creative. Yeah, well, that's what I was going to say is that despite all that, like the first 10 minutes of this movie are the most complete example of world building in a movie that I've ever seen. Um, mm-hmm. And it's not like Blade Runner where uh, like Ridley Scott, just in these sort of big sweeping shots, Ridley Scott uh, would establish this really interesting world, but the world doesn't really have anything to do with the story. Like... He sets the tone and the world and a complete vision of what this is like in the first ten minutes, and yes. it's um, and it's amazing the sort of things how he just like quickly skewers everything from uh, fast food. There's a scene at the restaurant where all of the food they're given is just a pile of colored sh- uh, slop, <laughs> accompanied by a photo of what it's supposed to taste like. Um, I mean that that's you know in, in ten seconds he completely. Uh, yeah, and then at the restaurant, like they're forced to order by numbers in ten seconds. Completely skewers fast food, plastic surgery, um, yeah, just propaganda, everything. Yeah, the propaganda element's quite amusing in this movie. I mean, this is a man who wants control of everything on his set to like the the background advertisements, the uh, you know the um, like happiness we're we're in we're all in this together sort of things in the background there that I really enjoy looking at, and even something like. Just the air duct systems in this movie, like it's almost like their intestines. Yeah, like he wants to give everything an organic feel to it, even if a lot of it's you know industrialized. That's what I really like is like he finds this nice balance between realism and surrealism, and it's well, like the story itself, it's kind of realistic because we've all felt a sense of oppression in our lives, whether if we're working at a job or you know we we want to meet the girl of our dreams. We've all had these feelings, but he also. Finds a way to bring them into a movie and make them seem original. Well, yeah, um, I've I've heard it described. The phrase I like best um, is a retrofitted future, in that hmm. it seems to um, instead of being a future where nothing resembles anything today, it's a future that seems to be built out of what's come before. Yeah, um, and so everything looks like. Uh, it it's almost resembles steampunk in that way, where it has its roots in older technology, but it's used in a different way. Um, and that's why all of his environments and everything look so familiar. Um, and yet, you know, are a completely different world because of the way he utilizes things like ducks, yeah. where there's sort of just this weird visual clutter at the top of you know warehouse and stuff. They've suddenly just taken over everything and, um. Actually, the oppressiveness you spoke of, um, when I first saw this movie, I was 16, and I realized when I was watching the movie that I never finished it, um, and the only thing I remembered were the first 10 minutes. So I remembered that it was funny, and I remembered the satire, and watching it again this time, this is really just one of the most oppressive 
like just the way he clutters the frame and everything looks so ugly yeah because of uh, purposefully ugly because it's just an ugly world built for not you know not it's built for function not form mm-hmm. Now, terrorist the restless victim mr Warren. yes this is mr Warren. no this is back it's definitely no my name's larry mr Warren. sam larry ah larry yes it's sir no cancel that boys okay i'm gonna have to have you one more these were yes no, nobody ticket us, Jack Yes, yes, yes. You like it up here? Stand back, back. We've got a crack team of other kidding decision makers. No, I'm expecting big things to accomplish the finance. Don't let progress see those. Between you and me, Larry, this no, no department. Tell records to get stuck. It's about to be upgraded. And ah, here we are. Your very own number on your very own door. And behind that door, your very own office. Congratulations. Mm-hmm. Um, and every frame is so packed with detail and the characters get lost in it, which, again, is purposeful. But it was – it almost – it was anxiety-inducing in me and it was actually – Especially re- the ending. Well, yeah. it's The ending is very depressing. But the entire movie, I had such a sense of anxiety that I almost – and I say almost because – this didn't happen, but I almost couldn't even enjoy like the humor. Well, I don't really think the ending is that depressing in a way because I almost feel like he's found an escape in his own mind, and that's a, very much you know a metaphor for how Gilliam thinks of movies is that like the imagination that's the escape that's that's how you escape from the bureaucracy of the world mm-hmm. that's how you escape the oppression is just like sinking yourself yourself into a dream world of sorts and that's that's something that like uh, there wouldn't be like a Michelle Gondry I don't think if there was a Brazil because I feel like a lot of the visual trickery especially the scene with Robert De Niro getting covered with all the papers mm-hmm. is such a Michelle Gondry kind of moment mm-hmm. um, but for me I don't know if I find the ending I mean, it's 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 definitely it's definitely not disheartening. Un- it's definitely not unambiguously happy. No, um, I I see where you're coming from. I really I want don't, him to be alive and living in the world, but I don't he's find much a happy song at the yeah, end. Um, it, it, by the way, this movie is over two years, and it's not a it's not a movie with twist endings, so we are going to spoil it. True. Um, um, but I, and in the end, um, you think at one point he has escaped, um, and that everything's going to be okay. And it turns out it was all a dream. Um, you know, like Nellie said, uh, and I hope someone, someone listening gets that joke. Um, it's, it's, it's a song by the rapper <laughs> Nellie. Uh, I shouldn't have explained it. That's so That's lame. Okay. okay. But anyway. Uh, so you are saying that you he has found escape. They could break him. Um, he's in he's imprisoned and he can't move and he's catatonic. But he's he's escaping through his dreams. I find that of little comfort. <laughs> well, I mean, he, I guess he's had a lobotomy of sorts. Yeah, yeah. And he's catatonic. Like he's not moving. Right. Um. And I always thought that he's trapped inside of himself. I thought the way it was shot at the end where. Uh, the the music fades away and then it pulls out and it's revealed that it's all a dream mm-hmm. implied that that's his dream fit like I didn't think yeah. it implied that he continues to dream after that and a lot of people did think that he was dead at the end like pulling away and then he just well, they, dies in the chair it's, and it's that's ambiguous it. it's ambiguous they say we broke him I don't think there's anything proving that he didn't die mm-hmm. I think that's definitely a possibility but 
And there are theories out there, you know, when you die that you actually live inside of a dream world. You right. live inside of a dream state indefinitely. But, uh, other I mean, than I, just the ending, I find just Gilliam's view of the world, um, like most you know, like most really good satire, it rings true and the fact that it rings true really feels depressing to me. It 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 was a really upsetting experience, honestly, watching it um and seeing this person lost in the system, uh, just it, trying to do a good thing and being completely unable to. You could use that as a metaphor for so many things uh, from, you know, Congress or, or just, you know, uh, just any, any kind of system. Yeah, this is one of those movies you can write a lot of different essays on and you can come up with different theories yeah. and you want to rewatch it. And, you know, the love story in of itself, I like he finally discovers love and what happens? It's taken away from him. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are definitely depressing elements to it. And, you know, obviously he should have escaped and should have lived happily ever after. But I feel like in most of Gilliam's films, he doesn't want to give that to his audience. Well, I don't think, yeah, I don't think it should have had a happy ending. I'm not, I'm not like, I'm definitely not arguing for the studio. Though, one thing I did notice when I was watching uh, the final cut and then I watched the documentary is the first thing they said after they saw the final cut was that it's a little too long, and I kind of agree. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, for sure. I think it's a well. There's two cuts. I think there's like a, a 140 minute cut and then a 130 minute cut. Yeah, the 140 minute is what I saw. Mm-hmm. I I and I do believe like 10, 10 sure. maybe 15 minutes could have been taken out oh, of the yeah. movie. And I it, could buy that. Yeah. But this is definitely hands down my favorite Terry Gilliam movie. Oh, it's a it's hands down one of like the great movies of all time. It's really like again. And think of the influence this kind of movie has had. Absolutely. Like on Dark City or, you know, um, I'm trying to think of it. Like, I definitely think like Richard Kelly was influenced by Oh, Brazil. totally. Southland Tales is yeah. all about, you know, Brazil is all over Southland Tales. For sure. Um, no, it's a hugely influential movie and it's a hugely, um, it, you know, despite what I said, it is a hugely enjoyable movie with a lot of really funny performances. Um, it's always nice. To sort of revisit when Robert De Niro was good, because um, <laughs> that that doesn't happen anymore. Yeah, Robert De Niro has a is retired now. I mean, he's still in movies, but he's retired he's from. He's actually acting. pretty good in the movie Stone that came out last year. Really? Which, yeah, it's shockingly he's he's excellent in that movie. The movie itself is eh. It's all right. It's pretty good. But I, I I'm pretty. I was pretty impressed with as him and excellent. Edward Norton. Okay, more or less excellent than his Cape Fear co-star Juliette Lewis in oh, Conviction. Oh, you're going there, aren't you? I don't want to go to Cape Fear. Well, I know Robert, we can go to Cape Fear later. Robert De Niro. Well, we'll do we'll do Martin Scorsese. We'll get into a Cape Fear discussion on this yeah. podcast. We will. Yeah, we'll get into it. That's where I'm going to be like frivolously writing notes down and be like, "This is what's wrong with this." This is okay. Anyway, to sum up this movie, we love it. That's that, and we kind of have to get to the complete opposite experience for me. Similar. Yeah. yeah. I want me to go to Las Vegas at once. As your attorney, I advise you to rent a very fast car with no top. Tape recorder for special music. Get the hell out of LA for at least 48 hours. We're all set. If I could just get, get you John Hancock, you're on your way. Yeah. Listen, you're going to be real careful with this car, right? Oh, yeah, man. Let's give them a boy lift. We can't stop here. This is that country. <laughs> Yeah, I've never run a convertible before. Get out. Ah! Hey, I can't 
place to park? Reasonable, you're on a sidewalk! Clear! What's the score here? That there was the trailer for uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, which is Terry Gilliam's movie from 1998, the second movie we're going to be discussing. Uh, It's uh, based off of the book by Hunter S. Thompson in which him and his associate, Dr. Gonzo, go on a drug-fueled rampage through Las Vegas. And um, how did you feel about uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, Jim? I'm not a fan. No. I I have to say, it's like visually I find it really cool to watch in spots but it's it's a chore to get through oh yeah it's uh i know but i agree i am not a fan of this movie either it's very repetitive um i actually don't like johnny depp when he's in manic mode i just i don't know why i like johnny depp and man i I think like ed wood is an example of him okay no that's an exception but for the most part here's i I like him when he's i was gonna say johnny depp is probably my least favorite part of this movie um i know he spent a lot of time with hunter s thompson he lived in his basement which sounds like the most fuck thing you could ever do and <laughs> live in hunter s thompson's basement i mean i think i'd rather live in john wayne gacy's basement but because there's you know it's less pre- it's more predictable to live there and you could get raped <laughs> <laughs> we should have a little ding kind of. anyway but my problem is with the movie, with the performances, it feels like it doesn't feel like a character at all. It feels like an impression. It feels like a bag of ticks. It feels like a bunch of quirks, and there's no character under there. It's absolutely a surface performance, and all I could see is Johnny Depp act. It's the opposite of like disappearing of a character, uh, of disappearing inside of a performance. Like, the performance disappears inside of the actor, and all you can see is a bunch of quirks, and it really makes it hard to have any investment at all um, in what's going on. I almost wonder if if they would have cast Bill Murray in, as the as Hunter S. Thompson. I'm, I'm sure he would have been too old at that point, but Bill Murray's portrayal of Hunter S. Thompson in Where the Buffalo Roam was so much more subtle. I felt like he created a fully dimensional character, and here he's so much of a caricature, and... Uh-huh. All I see is Johnny Depp acting. And again, it's a heightened movie. Yeah, He's it's on supposed to be. all I... sorts of insane drugs during the movie. It's going. It's not going to be a subtle, quiet performance. Um, but I really do think, all that aside, it was a very bad performance still. Um, and it really does sink the movie. I'm done with the movie and, it, and uh, about halfway through and there's still an hour left. Yeah, it's kind of it's it's kind of interesting with with the visual style, especially because it's reflecting you know what it's like to have an acid trip. It and is, everything. as a matter and, of fact, because I, I I do I do want to say that I'm I'm a fan of psychedelics, um, and uh, that that is one thing. White, you have black light posters all over your wall. I have black light posters all over your my favorite wall. Favorite band is Pink Floyd. <laughs> my favorite band is Pink Floyd. Uh, I I keep talking about uh, Aldous Huxley's Doors of Perception. <laughs> um, you know, electric Kool-Aid, acid test, something, something Grateful Dead. But uh, and he, Gilliam, Gilliam, I really do think Gilliam was the perfect director for this movie because, again, he does have this anarchist streak. And for at least part of the movie, it, it, you really do need to celebrate these two characters just totally, uh, you know, running through places and tearing things apart and making, you know, fools themselves. But it grows so tiring. Yeah, I mean, he t- he did the best, you know, he did the best he could with an unfilmable book. And that's that's how I was feeling. I I think it's just a case of this is the best possible fear and loathing movie that could have happened, other than Johnny Depp's performance. But 
I think that that just means that it shouldn't have been a movie. Yeah, I mean, all of the joy of that book is through the prose and, you know, through Hunter S. Thompson's writing. And you can't do that with film. You can't do that right. as a director. I mean, he does a lot. Uh, there's, you know, wall-to-wall uh, narration in this movie. Yeah, but it just it feels like a greatest hits. It feels like it doesn't it's not the same at all. Um I thought Benicio del Toro's amazing in it. He really He's always amazing. He yeah, really is. He really is, especially in I don't know, I didn't see Wolf. There, there's a scene in this, a There's a scene joke. in this movie that really stood out um because it's one of the few where there's not a lot of things going on visually, but it takes place in a diner. Yes, at the end of the movie yeah. where the idea of the whole movie is that it starts off as thrilling and crazy and funny. Um, and, and then, then gets, reality kicks in. And then in. as reality kicks in, uh, it's really depressing. And the whole idea is supposed to – it's supposed to mirror the 60s um, and how it sort of turned into the 70s and how the dream of you know free love and all of that and the, sort of the hippie idealism, all that died. Yeah, the death of hippie idealism. Um, and I get that. I just don't think it's a very good <laughs> – it makes for a good movie. No. Um, but, yeah, that scene in the diner you're talking about is it's very really quiet. Um, it's the ultimate hangover scene because they're not hungover on, you know, a bottle of whiskey. They're hungover on – And they're tormenting a waitress. Yeah. Um, and, and Benicio Del Toro just sort of quietly torments this waitress. Um, the thing he does, he does with a lemon meringue pie, it's just really subtle. And it's like, I needed more of this in this movie. I needed – a break from from all the Johnny Deppism in this movie. And again, I don't think this is the kind of movie where you can have that break. I realize that. I realize that. But you know, I mean, something like Natural Born Killers with its visual flair, I think, is also rep- repetitive and kind of annoying. <laughs> I mean, it serves the purpose for what Oliver Stone is trying to do. He's definitely trying to hit the nail on the head over and over and over mm-hmm. and over again. And Car- and Terry Gilliam, like I said. Even in a bad movie, you, you're pretty much guaranteed to go, wow, that's fucking cool. That's a cool camera yeah. shot, or that's a cool visual. How, yeah, You've never seen not, that before. It's mostly, all most of the um, disorienting effects of the highs are achieved through forced perspective and lighting mm-hmm. and uneasy camera movement. Um, and, um, yeah. This was originally supposed to be animated by Ralph Bakshi. See, that I, I feel like that could have worked. But I think so, too. It's a certain... Also, my other problem with it is I didn't really find any of it funny. Right. It feels way too... Maybe it's just Johnny Depp's performance, but it's just... It feels way too, I'm doing crazy things. I'm saying crazy things. This is crazy. I thought the only quotable t- line from him was, Finish the fucking story! I just love the way he delivered that. I, I don't remember. Was, even, I don't even remember that's that. That's when he, when he started to see Benicio Del Toro with tits. He turned into like oh a yeah, yeah, because he took monster. the adrenal, the adrenal yeah. gr- gland, which isn't a real thing. It isn't. No, there's no drug that comes from that's. Hmm. Uh, that was something made up by Hunter S. Thompson. Oh, Most of the okay, it's based off of. It's not an actual nonfiction of account of anything of any one thing he did. Right. It is a fictional novel, the uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. He didn't go to Las Vegas. He did go to Las Vegas to cover a motorcycle rally, right. but it wasn't with like. It wasn't with Dr. Gonzo that time. He wasn't in that long. It wasn't – it's not a day-to-day count. That's not what it is. But again, I, I'm a fan of Hunter S. Thompson to a point. Um, I'm a fan of the book and I I'm really do think – I and, really but, don't think Terry Gilliam dropped the ball here. I just think this is a movie that – Wasn't sh- meant to be a movie. Yeah, it wasn't meant to be a movie. Yeah. 
and it's definitely over long. And by the end, you're kind of like, well, what's he trying to say here? And then it spells it out for you. Yeah. With, you know, a monologue. And it just doesn't, it just doesn't mesh well very, very, very much. I mean, Christina Ricci shows up, but that's kind of like a throwaway thing. And, you know, I just, it all takes place in hotel rooms. It's all visually crazy. And after a while, it kind of made me nauseous, you yeah. know? And I just, I, I'm, I'm disappointed. Which, again, I'm sure was intentional, but it True. doesn't necessarily make for a, a movie that you want to watch. That being said, this movie is a cult classic for a reason. If you are really in tune with its sense of humor, which I'm not, and I take it you really weren't. No. But there are people who just really love this movie and I, really find it very funny. The whole thing, extremely funny. And if... If I found it as funny as these people, I would I would love it because all it is is you know Johnny Depp and Benicio del Toro acting crazy and um, fucking with people. And but I'd, I'd much rather watch a Cheech and Chong comedy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I feel like those guys up are at least smoke fun. is up those guys are really fun. funny. Those guys are more fun to hang out with than these two. But I like I do think like Ter- Terry Gilliam was the right director because he has this anarchist streak. You can, there's a shot in Brazil. Where it just sort of lingers on this tube that's exploded and yeah. papers are falling down like snow, and it's there's a I've, I'm reminded the uh, the ending of Twelve Monkeys with the elephants and the all those zoo animals running mm-hmm. running through the highway, like all of these things, are, you can tell that he just lovingly shoots. And again, Fear and Loathing, he really does for a for a certain point, he wants you to really uh, marvel at these two guys and sort of applaud them for going to the depths they do we'll play one of the few funnier scenes from the movie and then sort of uh wrap things up with like a a quick rundown of some of the other terry gilliam films we enjoy or have watched and uh we'll we'll wrap it on up from there yeah i'm a police chief from michigan look fella i have explained to you i have this postcard which says that i have a reservation in this hotel. I'm very sorry, sir, but you're on the late list. So your reservation has been transferred to the Moonlight Motel, which is just out on Paradise Boulevard. We've already paid for our goddamn room. Well, it's actually a very fine place of lodging, and it's only 16 blocks from here. It has a pool, a sauna, steam. You listen to me, you filthy little faggot! I want marriage out there! Now! Now! Now, because I'm sick of this! Very sorry, sir. So, Patrick, did you watch some more Terry Gilliam films other than the two? Yes, I did. Discussed. As a matter of fact, um, uh, actually, I didn't watch as many as I planned to, um, but I did watch The Fisher King. Um, Probably be my second or third favorite Gilliam. Movie. You know, The Fisher King. I I saw a while ago, and any movie I've seen like over five years ago, I don't trust my opinion of it because just my tastes in movies have changed so well, much. You've changed as a years. person. I've changed as a person. I've grown. I've gotten my first period. Um, so yeah, uh, but what I remembered of The Fisher King made me think I would not like it because just the story, the plot of it, seems like the worst kind of Hollywood schmaltzy. Uh, a homeless person saves a rich person's and life. And you've got Manic Robin Williams. And it, yeah, and Manic Robin Williams, which I hate. We actually, Me too. we recently watched uh, World's Greatest Dad. Should brought that up. Yeah, we yeah, did. W- and I, I, one thing I, I noted was how able he, he was able to be funny without being manic. Exactly. Um, but when I watched uh, Fisher King, I really did fall for it. I love it. It's 
Yeah. Every for every one sort of Hollywood bullshit thing, and it is a Hollywood, especially compared to Gilliam's other movies, which are very not sentimental, and you know he's he doesn't make compromises and any of that. It 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 feels. I mean, it's a compared to his other movies, it's a Hollywood bullshit kind of movie. But for every one thing that doesn't really work, um, in that that you know that operates in that way and seems a little forced, there's like five other things that are sort of unexpected and great. Yeah, well, the thing about this, especially, is that it wasn't a Gilliam script, and Richard Leglavenez, who's kind of written a lot of scripts for Hollywood, and he's he's actually an excellent writer. I mean, he's written an Aaron Brockovich or something along those lines too, but he's mm-hmm. actually really original in the stuff that he does produce for Hollywood. And you got Jeff Bridges behind, you know. I mean, he can do no wrong. And it's one of those movies that I I respond to, especially because a lot of it sort of portrays post traumatic stress disorder. And what happens to Robin Williams, you know, as a result of the tragedy he's been faced with. And it's it's really f- fascinating to watch him and Jeff Bridges bond. And, you know, the, the, the love story with Amanda Plummer works. Everything about this movie I, I, I genuinely enjoy. And even though I know where it's going, I love it still. I, I really like the Amanda Plummer and uh, the Mercedes relationship. Mercedes Rule is really great. Yeah, she I think she won, yeah, she won the Academy that, that Award. One, yeah, that one scene is Mercedes Rule, Jeff Bridges' girlfriend. Yes. Yes. Yeah, that one scene that they have together is so great. And I was even, I was in my head, I was watching it, and I'm like, you know, am I supposed to like Amanda Plummer because she's weird? Because she's, <laughs> she's kind of being a bitch. And then Mercedes' character goes well you know what you're a bitch and i'm like yes good okay <laughs> yeah this isn't She's a uh, blunt, blunt lady yes and it works and um yeah and most of this movie is really direct and that's what i kind of like about it i mean most movies like you know i want subtlety but for some reason this works i mean even robin williams as manic as he can be in this i i feel like you know it's not one of my favorite performances of his but in, in a terry gilliam world especially when he's surrounded by the other homeless guys yeah it works yeah, I again uh, the the wacky wacky homeless people. Um, it, it, it that didn't work for me, but then you get to that specific character who just has that sort of like forty five second monologue about mm-hmm. you know about how he used to be a singer and how his dad kicked him out, and you get so much history on that character in forty five seconds. And again, then it won me over. My favorite scene by far is. The, the the most obviously Gilliam touch is when Ron Williams is following Amanda Plummer through the train station, and the train station, all the crowds of people suddenly turn into ballroom. They're all ballroom dancing oh, with yeah, each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's such an amazing, like, just directorial flourish where all of a sudden he's no longer this homeless, crazy homeless person following this poor lady. He's at a party and he wants to talk to her. And it like it really is so romantic, and as a matter of fact, since that movie started, they actually have ballroom. I can't remember what the anniversary is, but every year in uh, every year in that train station in New York, they have ballroom dancing. Oh wow, that's cool! Yeah. And it's such a great <laughs> moment, and it, it is schmaltzy, and I, I certainly wouldn't put it up there with Brazil, and it's certainly Gilliam cut. Like it's not Gilliam raw, like mm-hmm. Brazil or even Fear and Loathing is. Um, so I'd say it's my third favorite of his movies. Number two would probably be Twelve Monkeys, and anything that sort of reminds me of Kurt Vonnegut, I, I can get behind. Well, I was very I Slaughterhouse say, Five. Well, are you including Life of Brian? Yeah, because Life of Brian would be my number two for sure. Well, I don't know if did he do Life of Brian? He directed it. Yeah, hmm. he directed that and Meaning of Life. Okay, 
Um, and he co-directed uh, Holy, Holy Grail. Grail with Terry, Terry Jones. Jones. Yeah. Right. Okay. No, I, I don't know. There's something about Twelve Monkeys. I really the more like Twelve I, Monkeys. The more I watch it, the more I like it. And again, and that has a manic performance. <laughs> yes, Terry Gilliam has manic performances. Yeah. But Brad, Brad Pitt, he got nominated for it. He's he's kind of fun to watch in this. But you got subtle Bruce Willis and jumping around in time, my kind of thing. And speaking of time, um, I rewatched Time Bandits, which is a cute little kids yeah, movie. Yeah, I didn't get a chance. I actually own that, but I never it's really I've never cute. watched it. It's not it's not like mind blowing, but at the same time, it it totally reminds me of something like Labyrinth. Where when it came out in like the early '80s and whatnot, it sort of captured that sensibility where it's it's British, but it, you know you could see it sort of fitting into the like a, a Muppet kind of a feel, and him jumping around through time and running into like King Arthur and uh, you know Sean Connery and right. Ian Holm as Napoleon. I mean, and again, Terry Gilliam doesn't shy away from a bleak, depressing ending in which the kids' parents blow up. <laughs> so I mean that's the thing about him is that he, even if he's doing a kids movie he's still going to put his stamp on it somehow. And you know, I haven't I'm not a big fan of Brothers Grimm. No. Um it was fine. I didn't hate it. Have it you, just you, you didn't, I just shrugged you didn't it see off. Uh, Thailand, did you? No. Thailand is Thailand is, is his a, worst movie from what I hear? Uh I didn't I didn't see Imaginarium or uh Imaginarium's fun. But uh and I haven't actually seen Brothers Grimm either. But the thing about Thailand is it follows a little girl and it's just a series of horrible things happening. First her mom burns to death in a in her bed and her dad freaks out and they they hide away in some abandoned house and then he dies of a heroin overdose. Dad played by Jeff Bridges. Doesn't she get molested or something? Because there was controversy about. I don't, I, I, I don't remember a molestation. Huh. It might be implied, but basically she escapes all of these horrors using her imagination, which is a very uh, Gilliam kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, unlike, yeah. but something that's very unlike Gilliam is you never see any of what she's imagining. You hmm. only see her talking to invisible people, addressing her doll like a doll head, like it's real. Um, so instead of being sort of uplifting or even sort of interesting or a, it, it just is endlessly depressing because it just seems like oh this girl has lost her mind because of her well it's um, interesting the critical response to that some people gave it an f some people gave it a b but it's more of like people like david cronenberg and ryan johnson loved it so now i want to see it well it's, <laughs> it's an interesting movie and it's certainly it's not like uh like it, it's not a it, it it doesn't fail for being for having lack of ambition or having a lack of a singular vision. I just thought it was horrible. Well, that came out the same year as Brothers Grimm, and I remember you know some of my Gilliam you know freaks were like, I wonder if he's lost it. I wonder if he has. But I I actually really enjoyed Imaginarium of Doctor Parnassus. I don't think like story wise it's not that fascinating, but I think visually and obviously what they did you know in light of Heath Ledger's passing, I thought was really clever. It's just fun to watch. It's one of those escapist films that's also visually interesting. And, you know, it's not really groundbreaking, but if you're into magic and just the spectacle of yeah. magic in general, I think it's worth watching. It's that actually, fun. That actually is on demand, and I almost watched it. But instead, I, 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 I felt too Gilliam because I had seen Brazil twice. I watched, yeah. I watched both the Final Cut and the Love Conquers All, and I watched the documentary. So I had spent like two full days with Gilliam with uh, Brazil, and I I just wanted something else. And I'm unfortunately, surprised ta- I'm surprised you're not talking really fast, and you have a lot of facial gimmicks going on right now. No, but unfortunately, what I chose instead of uh, Doctor Parnassus is taking of the Pelham one, two, three. No, yeah. no, that wasn't a good choice. Patrick, what'd you do? 
I made a mistake. That's what I did. No. Yep. I'm that sorry. movie raped my eyes. Oh. Yeah. All right. On that note, we're about to wrap. We're ready to wrap things up. What was for that? Terry? I don't know. You malfunctioning? I turned into a puppy. Is that a puppy noise? That's like if a a dog wanted to talk about Terry Gilliam. Sounds like a man with a mouthful of marbles. Or a man without a face. Speaking of a man with a mouthful of marbles, marbles, <laughs> Marlboros, Marlboros, uh, Stephen Mar- Steve Martin on the cover of that one album. Do you remember that? Do you remember that one oh, comedy yeah, album he had yeah, where he had yeah. like, a thousand cigarettes in his mouth? How do you do that? Oh, he just had someone place him in there and lit him. He's trying to look real smooth. Oh, so mm. good. I love Steve Martin. Can we do Steve Martin next? What did he direct? Um, nothing. No? Remember, we went we went through his IMDb. You know what? We're going to have to decide on a director right now, live That's on the true. show. And we got about five minutes to do it. Jim, what are we going to do? You gave me two. We, we want to do something light, and we wanted to do a comedy director. Yeah. And the I two mean, ideas you had. Terry Gilliam's kind of light, but not really. I, no, I he's do not light. I want to do something like a comedy director who primarily makes like short 90-minute kind of fun movies. I'm not saying like it has to be short, but you I'm know. Just, you're just saying you had a really bad week and I Terry Gilliam laugh. didn't help. I want to laugh. No, yeah. Terry Gilliam helped. Uh, John, he helped me, so es- we, the two he helped me escape. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> Into my Car- dream world. John Carpenter helped me escape. Mm, yeah. uh, to New York. L.A. Um, I'm sorry. Too bad he never did Escape from Earth. <laughs> that He's was the proposed yeah, third yeah, yeah. one, yeah. Speaking of which, probably going to do John Carpenter when The Ward finally comes out. Oh, shit, yeah. But that's supposed to be soon. I actually thought it was January. Maybe it's February. It's come out in England or UK already. Okay. Um, anyway, so the two directors we came up with were Harold Ramis and John Landis. Right. Yeah. I thought I, thought I said Ivan Reitman, probably because I was going to see nothing but the tr- – no. <laughs> because I was going to see No Strings Attached. Mm-hmm. I was in an NSYNC kind of mood. No. Um, uh, okay, yeah. So which I mean I could go with Ivan I don't want to go with Ivan Reitman I that's fine right now because we'd have to juncture. watch no actually Harold Ramis did year one I was gonna say yeah Ivan Reitman did Meatballs hmm well John Land let's see who has I mean we're not gonna obviously watch their entire filmographies mm-hmm. um, we can go with whoever has made less movies and I'm guessing it's probably John Landis no it's Ramis. Really? It's definitely but he just Ramis. Came up, he just came out with a year one. Yeah, it's Ramis. Oh, you know what? It's I think I'm looking at. Um, you're right. You're Writer. Right. Yeah, I was. No, I was looking at everything that he's. You're doing. on IMDb right yeah. now for the folks at home. He did uh, Caddyshack, National Lampoon's Vacation, mm-hmm. Groundhog Day, Stuart Saves His Family, which is wait, he really directed good. Uh, National. He directed Vacation. Yeah, John Hughes wrote it. Harold Ramis directed it. Oh man, that's yeah, that's the only movie by John Hughes that I like. He did Mr. Mom. With Jeffrey Tambor. Yeah, Jeffrey Tambor's in it for so little. <laughs> I, know. I lo- The only reason I, I like Michael Mr. Keaton. The only reason I like Mr. Mom is Michael Keaton. He's hilarious. Uh, and I don't like Ferris. And someone, someone, they did send in Earl, me. we were never in aisle eight. I, I'm sorry. We, <laughs> we, were sent, we were sent an email by, by two separate people who thought that our, we were a little tough on John Hughes. That's right. Yeah. Um, but... No, we're not. Uh, we'll do John Hughes later, and you'll see. I'll, I'll reveal to the world. I'm, I don't know if I want to do that, because your your visceral reaction while watching the Oscars was traumatic for me. <laughs> I had to go straight to therapy the next day, and I was like, my friend Patrick hates John Hughes. <laughs> oh, I just, you He doesn't know. like breakfast club. 
Breakfast Club's horrible. I don't think it's horrible. It is horrible. I don't think it's horrible. Breakfast Club's one of the worst movies. It's it, there's Manos, the Hands of Fate. There's Taking of the Pelham <laughs> One, Two, Three. You're you're ready to create. You're ready to alienate a bunch of our listeners again. Well, that's that's all you you're can about. you can like John Hughes. Just you know, oh, be aware should, that you're wrong. We should do John Landis because we can watch Three Amigos. Yeah, I haven't uh, seen Three Amigos. As a matter of fact, get out of here. No, I haven't seen Three Amigos. Oh my god. You know why? I've avoided it. But he's done it. a lot of shit. Well, yeah. God, the stupid. We don't have to watch Oscar. We don't have to watch Blues Brothers 2000. Um, but because that's like 2,000 years. You know long. why I avoided Three Amigos? Because of one of the leads. Oh, I'll Martin give you a Short. hint. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's Martin Short. That's too bad. He's too bad. <laughs> he's too bad in everything well, he's in. You're right. Harold Ramis has done less. Yeah. Um, Let's do John Landis. I kind of want to because he'd be more fun. Yeah. I mean, I like Harold Ramis, and I especially think Stuart Says His Family is underrated. It's less of a comedy, though. It's more about alcoholism, which I is it on like. DVD or is that one of those VHS only nah, movies? I think it's I think it's out of print. So we could uh, we'll choose the movies, but for right now, we're definitely going to stick with Mr. John Landis. Yeah, bearded. I think he's always been bearded, and he director of the thriller video, and you know, all around lover of boobs mm-hmm. um, and so, monster movies. Yeah. For sure. So that'll be exciting. We should give a shout out to his... Uh, Boobs and monster movies. That's all you need. That's all a growing boy needs. Yeah. In addition to the Director's Club podcast. We're not, dot ending, com. It like, we're not ending it like that. No, we're not <laughs> ending it like that. How dare you? With that, with monsters and boobs? No, we're not ending it with all you need is the Director's Club podcast. <laughs> you don't need to promote it. We're, they're already here. All right. Okay, you're right. And, I'm just until kidding. Next- I'm just, I was just trying to say... That we're ending the show, yeah. and that you can go visit directorsclubpodcast.com, dot com, mm-hmm. and you can send us an email at directorsclubpodcast at gmail dot com. That's right. We love I to hear from you. Like our audience. Yeah, me too. My name is Jim Laskowski. My name is Patrick Rape Rapol. <laughs> Goodbye for now. See you next week. Three. Oh, yeah. no! That wasn't a good choice. Patrick, what'd you do? That movie raped my eyes. Oh, it's not unusual to have fun with anyone. But when I see you hanging about with anyone.